to blood. I don't know if any of you have trouble like I do, but I get very squeamish whenever someone is taking my blood. I had to have my blood drawn this past week for a test, and when I saw her take out all the vials, and I thought, I'm going to die. I'm sure it wasn't that many, but it looked like a lot to me. And as, see, I can't look at it, because as I look at it, and I see those little vials filling up, I think, don't I need that to live? Isn't that part of the stuff that keeps me alive? I remember in high school, I was on a medicine uh, for two years, and every month I had to get a blood test to make sure this medicine wasn't shutting my liver down. And even though, so that happened over 20 times, I still cannot bear the sight of it. So I thank God for people that can work in the medical field, and it doesn't make them, it doesn't make them queasy at all. Because you've got to have people that don't lose their cool whenever something like that happens. And I can remember... Maybe it's because of how I felt about blood, or maybe it was something else. I can remember the first time I came to a Baptist church, and I encountered a hymn that was about, quote, the blood. And I thought, boy, isn't that weird? Um, not, not that they never talked about the blood of Christ in the Greek Orthodox Church, but it was always in liturgy, and it was always in, perhaps in song, and I never really paid much attention to it. And then um, there were phrases in some of the songs and, and that I just thought, ew, right? I remember one phrase in the song, the blood-washed throng. Larry, can you think of what psalm or what hymn has the blood-washed throng in it? And I thought, that sounds horrifying. That's like a zombie movie. That's what I I thought of when I first heard that. And and I, I kept wondering why people were talking about it. Tonight, we're going to observe the Lord's Supper. And the bread reminds us of the body that was broken for us, and the fruit of the vine reminds us of the blood that was shed for us. And like I said, the the idea when I was a young believer and especially an unbeliever, the idea of blood was very troubling. I don't know um, if I'm the only one. It seemed messy. It seemed like God wouldn't allow Jesus to be messy because he was the, the son of God, and that's not something, it's undignified for that to happen. And so we ask ourselves this question, why do we emphasize it? Well, because Jesus emphasized it. Why did Jesus emphasize it? Well, we'll look at that tonight. It's the same reason why a number of our old hymns, especially, and we sang a not-so-old hymn that was written in the last couple decades that talked about the power of the cross and spoke about the blood. So it's not as though it's not a common thing, but there are some hymnals, there are some churches where they would hesitate to speak about blood because it is an unpleasant topic. And so I think it's important for us tonight to look into why we make such a big deal about it. And so the blood of Jesus Christ, why it was shed, what it means for us, cannot be overemphasized, especially on a night like tonight. So if you join me in Romans chapter 3 this evening, Romans chapter 3, we'll begin reading together in verse number 21 of Romans chapter 3. The word of God says this, But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God, To declare, I say, at this time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him 
which believeth in Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that in this hour you would open your word to us, that we would have understanding, that you'd make it clear and show us the difference that it makes. May it lead us to rejoicing. May it lead us to worship of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Apostle Paul, the human penman for this book, we know the Holy Spirit, the author of it, writing to the believers that are in the churches that are in Rome, and he talks about a lot of doctrine. If you ever wanted to get confused while reading the Bible, read the book of Romans. Uh, unless you've read it before and gotten some context for it, it can be, can be a little bit difficult. Same thing with the book of Hebrews. In fact, there are other Bible authors that looked at Paul's writings and they're like, you know what? Sometimes it's hard to understand. There's so much doctrine, so much richness in this book, especially about salvation. And so as we look at this passage, he's talking here about, but now the righteousness of God without the law. But now we have a, a change in the conversation, talking before about how you can be right with God if you keep the whole law. When we talk about the law, we're referring to the law that was given through Moses to the children of Israel. Those behaviors, whether they had to do with how the nation should be run or how they should worship God or how they should conduct themselves morally, all the aspects of their lives were prescribed for them in that Old Testament law. There were things you could eat and not eat. There were days you could work and not work. There were sacrifices that need to be offered. There were things that could not be done. There were things that must be done. And some of it was obvious and some of it was difficult to understand. And the pattern before was you have to keep the whole law in the Old Testament as a Jewish believer in God in order to be right with God. That righteousness of God, meaning being right with him, being thoroughly right before him, was something that was burdensome to do. And even the best of people could not do it all the time. He says, but now things have changed. Not by deeds of the law, but, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested. The word manifested makes us think of a curtain being pulled back and something being revealed, something that perhaps was hidden before and now is shown clearly. And so we get this idea that there is a way to be right with God without having dotted every I and crossing every T, without having been a perfect person, without having been a, a um, 100% follower of everything that was written. By the way, no natural man has ever followed every aspect of the law. There's only one person who did everything that God asked and in his own merit earned righteousness. And that was the Lord Jesus Christ. Everybody else, as we're going to see here in a little bit, has fallen short. So I, I had a conversation with somebody. They were telling me about a, a witnessing opportunity that they had with someone at work. And they, they wound up in this really awkward situation. They had tried, he was explaining to an atheist about why um, people need to be saved and how you don't have to be good to go to heaven. You need to be saved in order to go to heaven. You have to have your sins forgiven by Jesus Christ. And this blew the mind of the atheist that he was talking to. And so he came back and he said, you know, my wife is a really good woman. I mean, she works in the inner city with disadvantaged children. She puts up with so much and she never loses her temper. And she's just, she's just the best person you could ever imagine. And asked this young man who was trying to witness and said, so you mean my wife is going to hell? It's a hard thing for somebody to put on you, isn't it? Right at that moment, somebody interrupted. <laughs> and there was an emergency that they had to go take care of. And so he ended up getting out of that and having a chance to get reinforcements and come and talk with his pastor about, well, what do, you, what do you say when something like that happens? 
And the response that I encouraged him to use was, I'm, I love to hear that your wife does all of those things, but is she perfect? Is she perfect? And realistically, no one can say yes to that. You might think your wife is perfect, right? And gentlemen, that's a nice thing to say. But we all know that as close as they are to perfection, and they're close, everyone has their days. Everyone has their moments. And so it says here, being now the righteousness of God without the laws manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, he's going back and saying, even in the Old Testament, there was this, this truth that one day there would be a deliverer, one day there would be somebody to save God's people from their sins because they could not do it for themselves. This way to be right with God was coming. And the Old Testament, which usually they would refer to as the law and the prophets, uh, that's how they would encompass all of that. And he said, even that speaks that this is something that was coming. Verse number 22, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ. Oftentimes we'll encounter that word even, and we'll say, I wonder what it's doing there. It's, it's giving us, when we see it in the Bible, more specific information about something that came before. So what is that way of righteousness without the law? Well, it is the righteousness of God being right with God, having Christ's perfect record put on us by faith in Jesus Christ. Now you have a different path. You have works, the things that you do, or faith. Works or grace. And where do we find it? We find it in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We find it in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, being right with God by faith. And it says, unto all and upon them all that believe, for there is no difference. I want you to know that in the mindset of early believers in Jesus, there was a question about what about non-Jewish people getting saved? The term that the Bible is going to use most often for non-Jewish people is going to be Gentile or is going to be a Greek. And there's a question about that thinking, can they become followers of Jesus too? Now, the vast majority of us that are here would probably identify as Gentiles. I most certainly identify as a Greek when they speak of the Greeks in the Bible. There's perhaps a few that by lineage would say that they're of the, the line of Abraham, but for the vast majority of us, we're, we're Gentiles, and there was a big question on whether a Gentile could actually be a follower of Jesus Christ. And people were divided on this. And in fact, one of the things that caused trouble in the early church was the Holy Spirit came upon the Gentiles. And the church in Jerusalem that was made up of almost entirely Jewish believers, they're like, wait a minute, we better send somebody down to look at this. We better investigate this because now we find that faith in the Jewish Messiah who fulfilled all these Jewish promises of the Jewish text is now not just for Jewish people, but for everybody. And it says that all of them that believe on Jesus Christ can have it, which is great news to the Romans because the vast majority of people in Rome were Gentiles, not Jewish people. It's great news to you and I as well. It says, for there is no difference. But I want us to look in verse number 23 and read the end of 22 in verse number 23 together. It says, for there is no difference for all have sinned. When it comes right down to it, everybody at some point has sinned, whether they were Jewish or Gentile. Whether they're church people or not, everybody has sinned. Whether you were raised in synagogue or raised in the temple or modern day, we might say raised in church or whether you were raised on the streets in the roughest of environments, Everybody has sinned, for all have sinned. That's why there's no difference, because all have sinned and all are in need of a Savior. Sin is when God says, don't do something that's bad, and we do it anyway. 
Or God says, do this good thing, and we can't be bothered with that. That is what it means to sin. It means to step over that line that God has put there, and everyone has come short of the glory of God. God set a standard that he deserved, and none of us measured up to it except for the Lord Jesus Christ. Didn't matter if you were a Jewish person or a Gentile person. Everybody was in need of a Savior. All of us failed to measure up to it. Look in Galatians chapter, chapter 3, would you? Galatians chapter 3. The law had a very important purpose, but it was never, except for the Lord Jesus, to be the means by which anybody got to heaven. Being good enough was never the means by which anybody was going to get to heaven. It says in verse number 24 of Galatians chapter 3, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. What does a schoolmaster do? A schoolmaster teaches you. He guides you. He shows you the things that you need to know. You know what the law did? It let me know I was in trouble. The law let me know. It wasn't the solution to my trouble, but it let me know that I wasn't where I ought to be. And so I needed something because I wasn't where I ought to be. And that was one of the great works of the law is to point people towards the Savior that should always come. It says in verse 24 that we are being justified freely by his grace. Being justified, being made right with God, being declared not guilty before the Lord, that is the work of justification. It's one of those uh, words that you can use in Scrabble and impress your friends. It's also one of those churchy words that people throw around that not a lot of people actually could explain what it means, but it means to be made right before God. Some people would say, just as if I'd never sinned. It's even better than that. It's just as if I'd never been a sinner. It's even better than that. Because we think about this polluted bloodstream that we're a part of because sin passed upon all mankind and death because of sin. This, this goes all the way back to the root of it. And we don't even bear that guilt that passed upon all mankind. It says it was given freely, at no cost, at no effort, there is only one thing that you and I have contributed to our salvation. There's only one thing that we have added to our salvation. Some people might say that you need to add works to your salvation. You need to do good things in order to be saved. You need to join a church to be saved. You need to be baptized to be saved or be christened to be saved or any number of things that have to be added to it. You need to add in a saint or you need to add in Mary to it. You know the only thing we added to our salvation? The sin that made it necessary. That's the only thing we brought to the table was the problem. And Jesus Christ brought all of the solution. And that's what it means when it says that we have been justified freely. To be justified freely by his grace. Grace is when God does something good for us just because he's good. It really has nothing to do with you and I being worth it. You and I having done the right thing. His grace is when he gives us good things that we don't really deserve. His mercy is when he withholds punishment or consequences that we really do deserve. And so it says here that the reason that you and I have any kind of salvation, that we are justified, is because God is good. Period. That's why he did it. He loved us. I don't know why, but he did. He loved us first, and now we love him. And where is this justification, this free justification by grace? 
It is through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption meaning set free, being bought back from the slavery of sin. We were all enslaved to it. By the way, there are people out there who would desperately like to live a better life than they're living. They would desperately like to live a life that pleases God. They know that there's something wrong with them and they don't seem to have any power to overcome it. That is the plight of the lost person who knows that something's wrong, but they don't yet know Christ who can set them free. You see, without the Spirit of God coming to live inside of a person, which is what happens when a believer comes to know Christ as Savior, they don't have the wherewithal to live a life that pleases God. They don't have the power to overcome the sin that holds on to them. They are truly at its beck and call. It's like a master who blows a whistle and the dog comes running. That's exactly how our flesh is before we have Christ in, inside of us to give us battle against the sin. It says it in verse number 24 that we find this in Christ Jesus and in Christ Jesus alone, whom, verse 25, God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. I hope you're writing these, these words down so that you can impress your friends at, at your, your next uh, dinner party, right? Justification, redemption. Now we hit propitiation, right? Propitiation is a word that you probably did not say this week unless you were teaching a Bible lesson to somebody. What does that even mean? It is the means by which God can forgive sins and still be right in doing it. It's the means by which God can forgive sins. It's that atoning sacrifice. It's the thing that satisfies God's wrath against sin. Now, when, when you say that you forgive somebody, it's different than when God says he forgives sin. Right? If you get into some sort of criminal activity and you're legitimately guilty of it, you robbed a bank and you get caught and you did it and everybody knows you did it, but when you go to the judge to stand before him and he's going to make a ruling in this case and he says, you know what, you did this thing, it was wrong, you stole all that money, but I really like you and so I'm just going to let you go. How many of you think that that is a good judge? Anybody think that's a good judge? That is not a good judge because he's letting bad guys go. It just happens that you're the bad guy this time, right? If you were watching that from the sideline, if you were the, the prosecuting attorney, you'd say, wait a minute, you can't just let him go. You can't just let her go because you like them. And so in the same way, God more than likes us, he loves us. And he wants us with him forever, but he can't just pretend that sin didn't happen. And he can't just be like, oh, all right, it's not a big deal. No, God is just. There's no shadow in turning. There's no darkness in him at all. He's so holy that he can't even look upon sin. And so for him to pretend that it's not there and sweep it under the rug, that's not real forgiveness. When you were a kid and you had to clean your room, did you ever shove everything in the closet instead of actually cleaning? Did you ever shove everything under the bed? Or even better, if you shared a room, did you ever shove everything under your sibling's bed? I hope you didn't do that. I hope you didn't do that. Some of you are looking at each other. Some of the kids are looking at each other, right? Is that really cleaning? Is that really addressing the problem? No. No, it most certainly isn't. Something deeper than that needs to happen. Something deeper than that. Verse number 25 says that Christ threw faith in his blood. What is blood doing there? What is the blood doing there? I want you to know that when Jesus Christ... When he died on the cross for your sins and for mine, he shed his blood. 
That wasn't just a secondary occurrence because he happened to be pierced. That didn't happen by accident. That was part of it. You see, in the Old Testament, there were pictures of Christ coming to die for the sins of mankind. The Old Testament sacrifices that took place inside of the tabernacle and then eventually the temple, there was blood that was shed from these sacrifices. And certain sacrifices had to have their blood brought to the mercy seat on the Day of Atonement and it had to be sprinkled over a a certain place. There was a, a whole prescribed behavior that had to be done yearly and even more often than that in some sacrifices where animals would have their blood shed. What did the animals do wrong? Nothing. It was this pattern of the innocent dying for the sinful guilty, dying because of the the sin of the guilty. And see, Jesus Christ was made that propitiation for us, that covering by God when he shed his blood on the cross. Would it have been the same thing if Jesus had been strangled instead of pierced and put on the cross? No, because the Old Testament prophecy said that he looked on them who pierced him. It talked about how he would suffer for our sins and he would shed his blood for us. Because blood is actually very, very important. Look in Hebrews chapter 9, would you? In Hebrews chapter 9. In Hebrews chapter 9, in verse number 22. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without the shedding of blood is no remission. And without shedding of blood is no remission. There is no covering. There is no forgiveness. There is no cleansing. There is no blotting out a person's sin without the shedding of blood. And so when the Lord Jesus Christ shed his blood on the cross, and we talk about faith in his blood, we are talking about faith that Christ was that satisfying sacrifice the last sacrifice, the full sacrifice, so that now no more sacrifices are needed. If you ever look at the Old Testament and you see the sacrifices that are prescribed that need to be made on an annual basis or on a, every time a, someone is born or every time a, a sin is committed and you say, why don't we still do that today? Did we just decide it was too much work and so we're not going to do it anymore? It's too messy, so we're not going to do it anymore? No, the answer is all sacrifices have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He was the last. This is the last blood the Lord says that he'll ever need, as the songwriter wrote. A beautiful song, that is. Through faith in his blood. This is talking about what Christ did for us on the cross. In Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 1, in verse number 7, it talks about the Lord Jesus. It says, In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. How do we have redemption? How have we been set free? Because he shed his blood for us. When Christ, the night before he was taken and betrayed, before he prayed in the garden, he was having that that last supper, instituting the Lord's Supper. He talked about his blood being the blood of the New Testament, this new promise, this new covenant that people were entering into. This was a, a deep thing that was going to happen with the shedding of his blood. God would not declare someone righteous without first dealing with their sin. God would not be able to declare somebody righteous and still be righteous himself if he didn't deal with their sin. It must have been cared for. And Jesus' sacrifice completely fulfilled God's demands and wrath against sin. It's right for God to forgive sin now. And we see that he's right for doing it. 
That's what, if you look back in our passage in Romans, that's what it means when it talks about his righteousness. To declare his righteousness for the remission of sins. God is right for forgiving those sins that are past. And verse 26, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. There's a whole lot of righteousness being tossed around in these verses, but here's, here's what it's saying. God is right to forgive sins because not only did he justify man, but he did it in a way where he could also be just himself. God didn't break the rules. Such a punishment had to be dealt out. Wrath against sin had to be carried out, but the Lord Jesus Christ bore it himself in his own body. God was the one who required this to be done, and God was the one who paid the cost for it. This is why he gave his only begotten son. As God is both the just and the justifier for those that believe in Jesus Christ, meaning he's the one who made us right with himself by giving his son on the cross for you and for me. And not just in some vague way, but that the Lord Jesus was given as that atoning sacrifice when he shed his blood for you and for me. That's why we make such a big deal about the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we're not afraid to sing about it in hymns, why we're not afraid to talk about it. Some people say, that bloody religion, I don't want anything to do with that. Friend, if we didn't have the blood in the religion, we would have no hope. There would be no redemption. Because if Christ did not do what he did for us on the cross, God wouldn't have any basis to forgive our sins. You see, God forgave our sins not by just pretending they didn't happen and waving his hand. No, a just God judges sin. And he did it by judging the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means when he is the propitiation for our sin, that that is the basis upon which God can forgive us and still be just. This is very theological, so let's, let's try and bring it down to something practical. First of all, remember that we are saved sinners. Remember that we are saved sinners. Who were the villains in Jesus' parables? When Jesus told the teaching story and someone was the bad guy in it, who was the bad guy? The Pharisees. Who were the Pharisees? They were religious hypocrites. They were people that pretended to be better than other people when on the inside they really weren't. And when people say that someone is acting like a Pharisee, they're talking about that they, they are acting high and mighty as though they're better than everyone else, as though they don't have to uh, put their pants on one leg at a time like every other person, Right? They, they act as though they're better. And we would say, I don't want to be the villain in Jesus' story. I don't want to be a Pharisee. But it's, it's easy to slip into that if we forget where we've come from. I thank God for every bit of the growth that I've experienced in my Christian life. And I'm thankful to see God growing other people in their Christian life as they follow after him. But one of the dangers that happens is we get further and further from perhaps a wild way of living, a godless way of thinking. When we're no longer doing the things we used to do, we could forget where we started. We could forget where we came from. Wouldn't that be a terrible thing? We don't, I don't want to go back and sit there and remember all of my sin and dwell in it. I don't think that's glorifying to God. But to feel like I have nothing in common with people anymore because I've been in church so long or I've been saved for so long that, that's, that's not a good thing to have happen. To remember that we're sinners in need of a Savior keeps us grateful, keeps us humble, and keeps us in compassion for those that don't yet know the Savior. 
When people come into our church, I've, I've heard so many glowing reports about how welcoming we are as a church. And not from people that just came once or twice, but because of the spirit that our church has had for decades of having compassion on people, of loving people that are going through hard times, of, of helping to restore people that have been involved in things that they ought not to have been involved in. Now they're dealing with the consequences of it. And this has happened for decades. This is one of the great legacies of, of Pastor Jenkins that he left here is a spirit of compassion towards people that are hurting. And they, they sense that it's different when they come in here. And that's not to toot our own horn. It's to praise God for what he's done. It's to be thankful and to continue that on. And one of the ways we do that is to make sure we don't forget that though we're saved and we have grown and perhaps we're not doing some of the things that we were doing before, we are still just sinners saved by grace. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The children of Israel were slaves in Egypt. God delivered them by the hand of Moses, took them through the wilderness, and eventually led them into the promised land. And when they got to the promised land, right before they went over, they were warned by Moses don't forget where you came from. Don't forget that you were slaves set free. Don't forget it was God who won these battles for you because the moment that you forget that God won these battles for you, you're going to forget the Lord and you're going to think that you did it. And you say, yeah, those Israelites better not forget that. And then they did. But you and I can oftentimes, if we're not careful, look down on others and not remember that we're just sinners saved by grace. Second of all, we should celebrate that we're justified by faith. Aren't you glad that Jesus Christ fulfilled all of those Old Testament sacrifices? I know that sometimes we use words in church that people don't understand. And I remember hearing a story of a Jewish person who was not just Jewish by background, but also a practicing Jewish by faith. And um, he came to the church for the first time, and they said that they were going to take up an offering. And he got very nervous. He's like, it's going to make a mess in here. He was thinking that they were about to bring in like a goat or a lamb or a bullock or, or something like that or a pair of turtle doves and, and there, there was going to be a sacrifice going on because when he thought of offering, all he knew of was the offering of the Old Testament. And praise God, the offering that we take up today is significantly less messy than that because the Lord Jesus has fulfilled all of the sacrifices that are necessary. He paid for it once for all. And so you and I know that not one natural man or woman ever kept the law. The only way that someone is right with God, that has that righteousness of God, has been because we've got it through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we don't have to bear the burden of always doing right and being right in order to get ourselves to heaven. That is something that we as Baptist people take for granted. Because there's so many other people that are in so-called uh, Christian denominations or cults that have a weight upon them. If they don't behave, if they don't pull their, if they don't toe the, the line, if they don't work their fair share, if they don't do things, then they're not going to end up in heaven. Do you know why it is that so many cults are so active in their outreach efforts? Do you know why that oftentimes the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons in their missionary efforts put the independent Baptists to shame and how far they've gone and what they've reached. Do you know why they do that? Because they're always on the line for whether or not they're going to make it to heaven. They're always worried that it's not going to be enough, that they haven't done enough because their behavior is required to get into heaven and their behavior is required to maintain that they're saved and on their way to heaven. 
That is not what the Bible teaches. That is false doctrine, but it is a very motivating false doctrine. I'm not saying we should tell people that uh, you're going to lose your salvation if you don't work hard in order to lie to them and help them to work hard. I don't think that's good. I think that by knowing what Christ did for us, it motivates us through gratitude on the other end. So instead of through fear, we do it through love. Instead of through guilt, we serve through gratitude. And that is, that is a far better way to serve the Lord. And it should lead us to a time of rejoicing. We don't have to do the works. We don't have to do it by the law. We do it by faith. We are saved not so that we are not saved by our good works, but so that we can do good works. To lead us to rejoice, to worship, to thank God, to celebrate that we're justified by faith. And then finally, we should unashamedly thank God for the blood of Christ. We should unashamedly thank God for the blood of Christ. It is through the blood of Christ, Christ's atoning work on the cross, that we have our salvation. And we should never be leery about talking about it. We may have to explain it because we have a very sanitized culture. We have a very sanitized culture. Do you remember me telling the story about how I stopped eating meat for a while when I realized that the juice in the bottom of the meat packet that was in the cellophane and the, the styrofoam on the bottom, the juice that was in there, when I found out what that juice was? By the way, it's not juice. When I found out what that was, I was like seven or eight years old. Now, I want you to think about people that grew up catching a chicken out of the backyard and watching Ma or Grandma cut it, pluck it, prepare it. They understood. We, we keep everything very clean and sanitized. Blood is something that you keep at a distance, and it's horrifying, and we have kits everywhere around and gloves that we put on and special procedures for how we deal with it when there's a biohazard contamination. We just don't, we're so separated from that. We're separated from the very idea of death and suffering in our culture. So that when people hear about blood, it's, ew. I understand that. I understand that. And, and we ought to be somewhat horrified. But in a thankful way that God was willing to shed the blood of his own son that we could have the forgiveness of sins. Think about how bad sin must be if that is the only payment that could satisfy the debt. If sin is so bad that such a rich price as the blood of the only begotten Son of God, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, if no other payment could be made that would satisfy the debt that you and I owed, how terrible, how terrible must the crime be if that is the just punishment? And it is. If without the blood of Christ, without his sacrifice on the cross, you and I would be lost forever. No amount of suffering, no matter how long we endured it, could ever pay for it. That's how terrible sin is. You see, with God, God is just. And so with him, the punishment always fits the crime. And if the punishment for sin is death and hell forever, then the crime must be truly horrible. See, sin is, is a very small thing sometimes in our mind. We don't make a big deal out of it. But when we remember what it took, it starts to put it in perspective what it is that we have been forgiven of. If we lose sight of sin's wickedness, let us remember what it cost to set us free from its bondage. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom, hath set, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes for a moment? As we prepare 
to take the Lord's Supper, I want to encourage you in this, this time of invitation, I want to encourage you to ask the Lord to search your heart. To ask God to make you thoroughly right. You see, the blood of the Lord Jesus, it doesn't just cover past sins, but the ones we committed today, and praise God for His grace, the ones we'll commit tomorrow. If you know Christ as Savior, all of your sins have been forgiven. For All of them were in the future from the moment that Christ died. And they're all covered by His blood. But you and I need to remain clean before the Lord. The Bible says if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's a promise made to believers. You say, how is He, how is he just to do that? Well, we just heard it tonight. Because of what the Lord Jesus did, it's the right thing for God to do to clean us up, to pick us up, and to put us back on the path to follow Him. If there's something in your life that you need to give over to the Lord, I want to encourage you to do so. If there's unrepentant sin in your heart and mind, if there's things in your life that ought not be there, but you, you want to participate in the Lord's Supper tonight, then you need to deal with those things before the Lord. You need to admit that it's wrong. Call it the sin that God calls it. Don't dress it up in a nice name. It's not a bad habit. It's not a mistake. It's not an indiscretion. It's sin. Good news is when we admit that it's sin, there's a cure for that. There's a cleansing for that. Maybe you're here tonight and the, the thought of the blood was always confusing, but now you realize why it's so significant. And you just want to live in gratitude for the great price that was paid for you. And you're saying, Father, help me to have more of a grateful spirit. Thank you for reminding me of what Jesus did for me. Would there be anybody like that tonight? No heads looking, every head bowed, every eye closed, no one looking around. Would there be anyone here say, Lord, help me to have more gratitude for what was given for me? Would you just slip your hand up and write back down? Amen. Amen. Help me to have more gratitude. Let me remember the price that was paid. Maybe it's been so long since you lived the life of uh, rebellion that you were saved out of, and it's hard to remember what it's like to be without Christ or to still be growing, and you found yourself with a critical maybe judgmental spirit instead of one of compassion and mercy. And you say, Lord, help me to have that spirit of Christ where we remember that we're just saved sinners. Anybody like that tonight and say, Lord, that's me, help me. I just want to pray for you. Amen. Amen. If the Lord has spoken to you about salvation, about baptism, about any other thing this evening, and you want to get that settled with him, let's do so at this time during this time of invitation. Father, be glorified, I pray, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would work in us to make us more like your son. Fill us with gratitude for the price that was paid, that we can be set free. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing together, shall we?